You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Season 2, Episode 9, Buck O'Neill, the Cubs' forgotten legend on the fly, the W podcast. This is uh, segment two of the podcast, and in this segment, to honor Black History Month, Crawley talks to Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, I am honored to be joined by Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. He is the narrator of MLB's newly released animated series, Undeniable, Stories from the Negro Leagues, and he hosts one of my favorite podcasts, Black Diamonds. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm doing well, man. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Uh, I'm so excited you're here. This episode is titled Buck O'Neill, the Cubs Forgotten Legend, because (laughs) I believe that not enough Cub fans know about the importance of the legacy of Buck O'Neill to the game of Mm -hmm. baseball, but how Buck specifically altered the course of the Chicago Cubs after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier. Um, Buck grew up in Florida and he went to high school and college at Edward Walters College. When did Buck first begin to play baseball? Was it in school or somewhere else? Yeah, no, he was introduced to the game by his dad at an early age as well. And so he was born in Carabelle, Florida, and then they moved to Sarasota. And that's when Buck really kind of fell in love with baseball, as I remember him saying the first time he hit that ball. He was in love with it. And that's kind of how baseball is. The first time you hit it, the first time that ball pops in your mitt, you know, you fall in love with baseball. And Buck fell very quickly in love with the game that he would be a part of for the next seven decades of his life. And or certainly for over 70, 70 years. And the game was just so special to him. And so, and as he would oftentimes talk about, I made my living in baseball. Yeah. I mean, you can't, it's, it's hard to have a bad life when you live, when you make your living doing something that you love. Absolutely. Now, Buck leaves Florida in 1934 and begins playing a couple of years of semi-professional barnstorming games. Tell our listeners about those barnstorming experience and what they were all about. Well, for Buck, they were always very interesting and very daring. And, you know, I think he would look back and say, man, I'm still, you know, at that time, lucky to still be here with some of the things that they had to do. But this is how much they loved it. He talked about a team that he played on and they had gotten, uh, I think they called themselves the New York Tigers and none of them had ever been to New York, but that's what they called themselves because they thought that name would give them some extra, I guess, panache. And so anyway, the story ends up with they have this old car where ultimately they would take turns, two of them standing on the, uh, I guess you own this old particular vehicle that had this kind of, kind of outside platform right around the doors. 
And he said one would hold, sit out, stand on there because wasn't enough room for all the guys to get in the car. And so <laughs> one would get get out and they'd hold hands and they'd ride for X number of miles. And then they switch up with another two guys. They would do the same thing and, until they made their way. I believe they were headed to Wichita. And uh, they ended up in Wichita, Kansas. And that's when he said he first met Satchel Paige. First saw Satchel Paige in the uh, Wichita tournament, the legendary Wichita tournament. And so, you know, they, they got beat handily, uh, but he saw Satchel Page. But again, the whole barnstorming aspect. Now, once he gets to the Negro Leagues, the barnstorming takes on a whole different meaning. Because as you well know, not only were they riding into these small towns, they would play the local town team. Sometimes they, if they were playing, say, for here, instance, here in Kansas City, the Kansas City Monarchs against St. Louis Stars, they might play here in Kansas City. They may take the Stars with them all the way until they got back to St. Louis, but along the way, they may stop and play games against one another in those small towns, or they would compete against the local town teams to earn some more money on en route to whatever city they were going to go play. And, and so some of that barnstorming baseball was just magnificent. And what it did, though, I think more so than anything else, the Negro Leagues, through their barnstorming antics, helped promote this game in towns that were not going to see major league teams. They were right. going to see professional baseball really for the first time through these barnstorming games. And, and so they played a tremendous role in helping promote this game because otherwise those towns in the middle of nowhere, they could only kind of read about the major leagues. Or if you were in a market that maybe had, you know, a lot of people fell in love with the St. Louis Cardinals because of KMOX. And his radio signal was so strong. But otherwise, you never got to see this up close and personal. And, and that's what barnstorming did. So a lot of fans, and these were a lot of white fans who saw black baseball and they fell in love with these legends of the Negro Leagues who had ridden into their towns to play the local town teams. Now, Buck, in 1937, he gets his break. He's signed by the Memphis Red Sox, mm -hmm. one of the original eight founding members of the Negro American Leagues. Um, what was that like? How did he get that big break? Was it with these barnstorming leagues and Satchel Page, or how did he get his break to get signed by the Memphis Red Sox? Yeah, no, no. He was very fortunate to sign with the Red Sox. And, you know, again, having been around playing, reputation starting to move around now. Everybody's talking about this big first first baseman, big, strong first baseman there that we've been seeing. And so he finally gets his break. He finally gets his break to play in the professional Negro Leagues in 1937 with the Memphis Red Sox. And the brilliance of the Kansas City Monarchs owner, James Leslie Wilkinson, J.L. Wilkinson, or Wilkie, as he was affectionately known he orchestrated the trade to bring Buck from Memphis over to Kansas City. And interesting enough, you know who takes Buck's roster place in Memphis when he leaves to come to the Kansas City Monarch? Who's that? The legendary Reese Goose Tatum. Oh, jeez. Star of the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> but Goose Tatum, unbeknownst to a lot of folks, was a two-sport professional star. Yeah, no, he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame and is credited with having invented the, the hook shot. But oh, Goose wow. Tatum was a slick fielding first baseman for the 
primarily for the Indianapolis Clowns, but it's certainly there with Memphis uh, that particular season after Buck left. And so they made the trade. Buck comes to Kansas City. He falls in love with Kansas City. Kansas City fell in love with Buck. And as Buck would say, he said, of coming to Kansas City, he said, I knew that I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe <laughs> because Kansas City and historic 18th and Vine was indeed the center of the universe. And this is a whole new world for Buck at this point in time. Now, he, he give me a scouting report of Buck O'Neill. For those that don't know, as a player, again, you mentioned first baseman, but he was a pretty solid hitter, right? Yeah, you know, lost in all of the hoopla around Buck as an ambassador, because that's what most of us talk about, how he so tirelessly promoted this game. And, and, and I don't care if it was youth baseball, high school baseball, Sandlot baseball, college baseball, it didn't matter. Buck was wanting to be a part of it, and he did. He promoted this game as tirelessly as anyone ever did. He made these indelible contributions. So many of them were off the field. But I'll never forget it. We're sitting in, in 2006, we're sitting in the conference room at the Negro Leagues Museum, and we are waiting the news to see if Buck is going to get into the Hall of Fame. And man, everybody's coming into the conference room. We had Buck held up there in the conference room. He's holding court. And everybody's coming into the conference room. And they're all saying, oh, Buck, you've done so much for this game. You're such a great ambassador. And honestly, I think Buck got a little tired of that ambassador stuff. He <laughs> said, look, I could play. And he could play. He was a great defensive first baseman. I think going to be in everybody's top five defensive first basemen in the Negro Leagues. A clutch line drive hitter with some power. And, and, and he wanted people to know I could play this game. Now, I'm, not, I'm more than just an ambassador. I was a ball player, too. And, and so now, and he really was. And, and you know what? He just seemed to be a natural-born winner and a natural-born leader of men. There's no question about it. You know, as, as Buck went, the Monarchs went. And, and this is with all the extraordinary talent that the Monarchs had during his tenure, both as a player and as a manager. You know, you go back and look at that 1942 team that he was a star on that ultimately won the Negro League World Series. And they've now four Hall of Famers from that team. Wow. Satchel Page. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. Hilton Smith, Willard Brown, and Buck O'Neill. And there was a second tier of stars that you could make a legitimate case that could have gone into the Hall of Fame, particularly one guy named Ted Strong. And Ted Strong is probably a name that most people who will be listening to your show, they've never heard before. 
but you should have. Ted Strong, as I say, was Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield was. <laughs> Man, 6'7", 230, 40 pounds, freakish athlete, played every position on the diamond except for pitcher and catcher. He was a 6'7", shortstop. You know, that's how athletic he was with great power, uh, hit for average, five-tool guy. And Buck O'Neill says the greatest athlete he ever saw play at that time. And, 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 and Buck saw a lot of them play. And, and Ted Strong, too, would star for the Harlem Globetrotters. That's the kind of athlete that we're talking about that called the Negro Leagues home. And, and Ted Strong was given much consideration to be the first to break the color barrier. Because if you're breaking it down just on baseball tools, Ted Strong had everything you needed. Ted Strong mm -hmm. had his own personal demons that ultimately, ultimately prevented him from getting to the big show. Yeah, all those guys were there in 1942, and they swept the powerful Homestead Grays. Uh, and I can tell you now, that was no small feat, sweeping the Homestead Grays, who had Hall of Famers Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson batting in the middle of a juggernaut offensive lineup. But man, as Buck would say, that 42 Monarchs pitching staff was as good as it gets. And, and and like you said, just his ambassadorship is just you know overshadowed. I mean, he hit 288 between 1937 and 1950. He had four 300 plus seasons at the plate, right? I mean, and and this is against some some of the best talent available. Whether you're talking about Josh Kipson or Cool Papa Bell and even Jackie Robinson, so you know he played like you said in two Negro World Series, winning it in 1942. Yes. He also played in three East West All-Star games. Can you tell our listeners the importance of these games and the connection Ooh. the East West All-Star game had with the city of Chicago? Oh, big time. Big time. The East West All-Star game is one of the greatest sporting events in American sports history and nobody knows it ever happened. And it did. It happened there in Chicago. It was established the same year as Major League Baseball's All-Star Game, 1933. And actually, the concept of the East-West All-Star Game really happened before MLB came up with this idea. And I can tell you now, it was unmatched. It was unmatched because now not only are you talking about the creme de la creme, you know, we're talking about the best of the best coming into Chicago's Comiskey Park to play this All-Star game. It debuted there in, in Comiskey, and it really played, they played their All-Star game every year in Comiskey. And as I share with my visitors here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, yes, it did outdraw Major League Baseball's All-Star game. Man, they were putting over 50,000 people in Chicago's Comiskey Park for the Negro Leagues version of the All-Star game. As Buck O'Neill would say, that black folks would come from as far west as Los Angeles by train, as far south as New Orleans, as far east as New York, converging on Chicago for this showcase event. I don't know of another sporting event that even compares. I guess now it would be perhaps, well, the Super Bowl and the NBA All-Star, where you've got all of this star power and not just people on the field, all the entertainers were coming to Chicago to be there. All the great jazz stars, all the legendary black comedians and entertainers, they're all there 
to watch this showcase event. And in, and in the eyes of so many, if you made the East-West All-Star game, that was actually more important than playing in the Negro League World Series, man, because everybody came to see and you came to be seen. Oh, it was a <laughs> showcase event. Oh, man, it would have been amazing to be able to see that. Now, Buck plays for the Monarchs from 37 to 55. There are a few years where Buck served for his country. Yes. But in 1948, Buck was named the manager of the Monarchs. He continued to play as well. But tell me about Buck, the manager. For as much as Buck was a great player, some say he may have been an even better manager. What made Buck such a great manager? I think his understanding of men and his ability to relate to them. The great George Altman, who also spent time there playing with the Cubs, who played for Buck in the Negro Leagues. He says of all the managers, and George played there with the Cubs, Cardinals, Mets, went overseas, played in Japan, says Buck O'Neill is still the greatest manager he ever played for. And it was that innate ability to understand when to put his arms around you, console you, comfort you, and when to kick you in the rump. <laughs> and, you know, there is that balance. There is that balance. And then just the knowledge that he had of the game, understanding situations, knowing when to install himself as a pinch hitter. You know, he did that. He would come through in the clutch all the time. But he just had the ability. Buck could have very easily been the first black manager in Major League Baseball history. You know, very easily during that, that tenure that he was there with the Cubs. And uh, he just had a complete understanding of the game, and he was able to relate that to his players. They all respected him, and they all wanted to play for him. And he just seemed to be, out, be able to bring out the best in, well, not just the people that he was around on the team, but I saw this throughout the rest of his life. He seemed to bring out the best in all of us. Well, after he was done playing baseball, so you can imagine what it must have been like playing for him. Yeah, and, and, and you know, listening to your podcast, the Black Diamond podcast, and listening to your episode on Ernie Banks, uh, this was a quote directly from Ernie. Just follow Buck O'Neill. This man is a leader. He's a genius. He understands people. He understands life. He will keep this going. He never gives up on situations he believes in. He's not discouraged about any of this. He believes he came along at the right time and is doing the right thing. He started the Negro League Museum in Kansas City. That was his goal, his mission, and many people resented that. But he stayed on course with his situations. All of us should learn from this man. So that's Ernie Banks on the leadership of Buck O'Neill. Yeah. Yeah. Just unreal. And I actually have this podcast or this bobblehead here. I'm just describing it to my leaders. <laughs> this, is my, this is it right here. It's 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 my Buck O'Neill bobblehead, and he's got the lineup card got right the lineup there. Lineup card, yeah. And 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 you know, just absolutely um, you know, just I think about that, about how many people what you know, you're talking about George Altman and Ernie Banks, how much respected, how much people respected him. 